Shift. Run. Stop. Welcome to Shift Run Stop. This is part two, guys, of the Christmas special 2021. And Merry Christmas to start with. And I hope you're all having a great time. And that 2022, try and remember what year it is, is uh, successful and delightful for you. um, And that all your geeky wishes come true. In this episode, we're going to catch up with one of our first ever guests from way back in 2009. Adam Tandy. Adam is a friend of the show, a, a mighty geek, um, and uh, and has a really fascinating job and kind of back catalogue of uh, work in the entertainment industry. So we talked to him a lot about the comedy shows he's produced and um, the kind of work that he does. Um, he is great. I think you're really going to like this one. We also have some more memories of the BBC Micro, which is, of course, 40 years old this year, in case you wanted to feel old <laughs> right now. And lots of you have been sending in your memories, which we've loved. Thank you so much for those. And listen out for the jingles in these episodes, which are the sort of 8-bit sounding Christmas classics. There's two, and they were both created by friend of the show and musical genius, LJ Rich. So thank you so much, LJ. We really appreciate you making those just for this show. So without further ado, enjoy Shift Run Stop Christmas Special Part 2. Adam, I was going to ask you what the difference between a producer in the the world of TV and producer in the world of film, because I I get the impression that there's a big overlap, but is there a different sort of producer? Yes, and in fact, even in film, they're sort of, they come around to the idea that there are producers and there are creative producers. So Ooh, I've not heard that before. So well, I, no, but I mean, it's a sort of a slightly woolly term. It just it says that there are lots of people who who call themselves producers, mm. but actually there are some producers who are creative producers who are sort of able to get to grips with scripts and characters and edits and the sort of the the business end of. I say business end, actually, I don't mean that. I mean the creative yeah, end of filmmaking. The and then the, there are other producers whose job it is to raise money and 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 put packages together and do the distribution deals and that 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 that, that literally is the business end of mm. producing the, the harvey weinsteins of the world that bring money to a project and i'm glad you brought harvey up at this point because that's that's uh that's that's really going to make my life a lot easier isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's the first association that Rue has with Adam, with what you do, Harvey, so, you know, so think of, what I'm think saying of, is you're not the same as Harvey Weinstein. That, that's exactly the right thing to say at this point. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and but it'd be, you know, producers are different. Even in television, there are lots of different ways. I mean, a producer in a documentary um, on, a, on a documentary project is different to a producer on a drama. Is different to a producer on comedy. You know, comedy producers actually have slightly more clout in terms of the creative because they're the sort of like the guardians of the the comedy mojo of the project and that's their job to make sure that the writer's vision the performer's vision and the director's vision is all is all doing the same thing is there an overlap then between a producer and a showrunner are they similar in in some of those genres? well in yes i mean in theory a showrunner is a producer you know they have the same level and they're given the same credit normally as an executive producer but a showrunner traditionally is like the head writer 
So if a show, and in, in America a lot of shows are writer-led, hmm. so they're created by a writer, sold by a writer, and then they ask a writer, normally the creator, to be the person who puts together all of the scripts for a season. Because that's a complicated job, they tend to take the showrunner title, but they are essentially the producer, hmm. the creative producer. And then they have other producers who are the sort of the nuts and bolts, let's get it made, logistical, box-ticking. Yeah. Taking that vision and actually doing all the necessary things to make it happen. Yeah, and they're not the one sitting in writers' rooms desperately trying to, turn, to churn out rewrites when everything goes wrong. So on the thick of it, I although I was often in script meetings, I didn't manage the writers' room. That was Armando's job. Yeah, interesting. It's really cool. And um, you've been involved in some of the very best things on television in the last few years, obviously, you know, the thick of it. And and I think um, we've had a load of love that we're, we've seen online over the last couple of years for Inside Number no. 9, which just went from strength to strength. So I, each series, it just seemed to keep getting better. Well, I'm, I'm glad you think that. I mean, I, there's no doubt we're finding it harder to mine because <laughs> the low-hanging fruit, I think, has been well and truly plucked on that now. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're, we're still going, so... I actually, had a, I actually had a question for you about Inside Number 9 um, relating to that, Adam, um, which I've written in the way that I need to read it. I mean, this is so offensive, but I'm going to do it anyway. Let's go through it. So I watched one about being an actor, one about being a writer, and started watching one about clowns. Where do you think they get their ideas about what it's like to be an actor, a writer, or a comedy performer? <laughs> And then I felt really bad, but that was half the series that they've just put out, and they were all excellent. I have to say. I have to. I have to. I have to agree with you. I can't. I can't do anything except take the bullet for them on that on that particular count, because I do give them the note every year that you know we should try and restrict the number of ones that are about the biz to 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 one. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. otherwise it starts to become. But then you know, then you then start to look at the other items and think well hang on how many episodes can we have about a policeman and in the last series there were i think two about a policeman mm-hmm. there were i think there were two policemen or one was an actor pretending to be a policeman yeah yeah you've got so, you speak that one through so yeah exactly so it was so, so, <laughs> so so the thing is you part of the reason why you have a creative producer is to take reasons Steve aside and say, now look, I think the, the mix is, the scripts are great, but the mix is slightly wrong. Right. Now, the problem we had with the last series was that we made it out of a bunch of scripts that were suitable for production during a lockdown. Yeah, um, I was wondering COVID. about that. They were slightly interiorized in terms mm-hmm. of their action and they were small cast and, you know, the, the, we, we had a limited selection. And the idea was that we were going to make that series and then immediately, as soon as we could, we would make another series and we would then mix and match between those two series. Mm-hmm. So series mm-hmm. six and series seven would then end up being basically a, a, a series of 12, which we'd play out six of them and then another six. But then BBC Two ran out of programmes and had to show all of the six that we'd done. I see. Because right. everybody else was struggling to make television as well. Yeah, everybody was struggling to make television. Yeah. And the cupboard wasn't exactly bare, but Inside Number 9, it was sort of ready, on the shelf, raring to go. And they went, I think we ought to show it, really. So yeah. we were aware that there were a number of episodes that were about you know, performers. Yeah, I guess that their, their experience, you know, sort of that thing about writing about what you know, like a lot of their life now is of being a, a performer and being on a set and, and writing all the time and that kind of thing, I guess. 
So that's dangerous. I mean, you have to be alert to that, I think, as a writer. You don't want to just suddenly become seduced by your own lifestyle because if, yeah. if your life experience is entirely the gilded or the ivory towers of literature, then that's mm. all you're ever going to write. Shift, run, stop. So do you think the public psyche is um, going to be affected by maybe as much as a year or two of really um, claustrophobic, small sets, you know, bottle episodes of, of a lot of our favourite favorite programmes? Do you think this is something we're, we're going to still be suffering from? Well, I I guess, well, in terms of what, what they're being fed as as consumers of television, I don't think yeah, that's true. Because, because of there's, the restrictions. Yeah. No, because there's lots, lots of people out there spending a lot of money making very, very expensive drama with huge budgets. And they are running the risk of every so often somebody being pinged and they have to stop shooting for a week or two or they have to juggle locations to make it all work. And I've lost members of staff, members of crew, actors, at very short notice because they've suddenly got, no, I'm sorry, I've been in contact with somebody. Yeah. Um, it happened to us when we were at the very beginning. You know, we, we were actually three days into our shoot for series six. We were halfway through last night at the proms and one of our actors in that cast came into contact with somebody in their block and had to suddenly self-isolate and they were in every scene and we had to we had to stop filming and then we actually remounted that episode 10 months later good grief so and and it was the last episode in the series wasn't it? well you know it was the well it was the first one we started shooting and but the last to be to be broadcast but it was the last to be finished is there um, a correlation there, or would would it not have mattered? The TX order wouldn't have. Oh no, we we spend forever trying to work out the order of the episodes mm. because I think you you do want to avoid the problem of putting two episodes next to each other that are both about actors, for mm. example, or you or <laughs> for instance, or for, for instance, <laughs> or two episodes that both have a very downbeat ending. Or two episodes that have a very upbeat ending. Or two episodes where the plot twist is sort of the same thing. And so you so the transmission order really matters on that show. And the the final episode that we transmitted in series six was Last Night of the Proms. And we'd had actually wanted it to go out earlier, but the BBC was worried that it would um uh, would interfere with their launch of the 2021 prom season. So, oh, wow. so, so they they very kindly asked us whether we might reconsider changing, and we said no. And they said no. Please, please consider changing. <laughs> and then we said no. And then they said no. Well, actually, you are going to change the rule. So, <laughs> so then we changed. It's not it. a question. It's not a question. No, we, we phrased it as a question, but it wasn't a question. If you want to push it on television, it's going to happen at a different time than you thought. But I mean, quite a powerful episode as well. And in some ways, having that as almost the sort of the culmination, the climax of that series, I, I thought worked really well. Were you, were you happy with the way that it, it came? Oh yeah, no. I mean, I was very pleased. I mean, it's a it's a marvelous state of the nation piece, and you know, it would have been I think it would have been better right where it was in the middle of the run because that means we would have ended with uh the Derek Jacobi episode which obviously ends with a, a demonic revelation so that was quite a good we, I like yeah what I like yeah but I like putting horror episodes at the end of the run and I don't think um I don't think there's any uh, any spoilers there really I think you could probably tell where that episode was going quite early on a long time ago, my late father worked as an electrician at St Edward's Hospital in Cheddleton, North Staffordshire. 
Each year at Christmas they put on some entertainment on the huge stage there in the enormous dance hall. They were very simple variety shows made up of choirs, musicians, singers and such, or as my father once put it, anyone who could bang two spoons together. Over time these shows evolved into simple one-act pantomimes and they became very popular. Eventually these one-actors became full-blown pantomimes. Humpty Dumpty, Little Miss Muffet and my favourite, a very unusual panto, Santa in Space, all directed by my dad. We had a BBC Model B at home and during panto season our micro became a word processor, running a very popular programme called Wordwise. We had a 9-pin Epsom dot matrix printer and my mum worked as script editor, rewriting certain scenes and printing them out on A5 paper, which could be given to the cast. Santa in Space presented a new challenge though. One scene required the inside of a spaceship to be built and my dad went to town on this. Control panels and flashing lights everywhere. He even installed pyrotechnics as the spaceship crashes at the end of the scene and everything explodes. Dad also wanted a huge screen in the set to display graphics and animations to look like space travel. I think he got his idea from Zen, the computer in Blake 7. The budget didn't quite stretch to a screen that size, so we made do with a big TV that presumably was borrowed from a member of staff at the hospital. My task was to create the graphics and animations to be shown on that screen. I set to work. I wrote a series of programmes that generated some suitable effects. I remember one which drew a colour-filled circle slowly increasing in size to mimic approaching a planet. Large text was used to display warning messages that were referenced in the script, red alert, emergency, abandoned ship and so on. All these animations were recorded to VHS tape at just the right duration so the right effect happened at the right time on stage. A stagehand pressed play on the video player at the start of the scene. The tape ran, showing the animations until the end where everything blows up. The stage goes dark and the curtain closes for the interval. I was 13 when we put on that show. I even had a part in it, though after that I much preferred to be backstage than on stage and that was the last time I performed in anything. So with all that said, it just remains for me to say happy 40th birthday to the BBC Micro. I'm in computers I'm in the mainframe I'm in your headphones Adam, were you producer of the League of Gentlemen Series 2? No. I you wasn't. Was it, no, was, was I? Um, I was the I was the producer of the uh, the remount, the the reunion episodes that they did in twenty eighteen. Uh, I see. That's why I had um, I'd um, incorrectly assigned you in in my head to being um, uh, being responsible for all of the legal gentlemen. But yes, it was it was just um, no. Those... I worked I worked a tiny little bit on the original radio series, and I worked a tiny little bit on approving the budget for the pilot for the first TV episode. And your dog Max stars in at least and, one episode. And, and Max is, is is dragged to his death behind Dr. Chinnery's bicycle in episode <laughs> your two. your dog! So really, my only claim to the to the League of Gentlemen um, brand is just that I was, the, I was the producer of the last three episodes that we did a few years ago to celebrate the 20th anniversary of them turning up at the BBC. And uh, you know that was an interesting thing because we thought, well, we can't we can't turn back the clock. We 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 definitely have to um, move the story on in Royston Vasey, and everybody's twenty years older. But having said that, you then kind of we did run into the sort of the cultural shift that's happened in this country, and you know there were some things that we thought were acceptable then that we wouldn't do now. So there was an awful lot of 
not quite second guessing the audience, but at least mm. um, uh, considering the um, the punches we were pulling. Mm. Mm. I don't well, I don't mean we were pulling punches, but the the, no, the, yes, the, the, the you know the characterizations that they were doing. It was they were very carefully considered yeah. to make them palatable for the twenty first century. Yeah. A lot of your output, your work, Adam, is really really lovely. I mean, something like Detectorists. It still makes me smile now just how warm and warm-hearted that is. Yeah, it's a, a, it's a warm, warm blanket of a show, I know. It's absolutely know. beautiful. How did, how did you um, choose the music for it? Because it's it's absolutely brilliant and completely pitch perfect well, for it as well. Well, it? Mackenzie knew Johnny because Johnny Flynn and he had both been in the production of Jerusalem, the Jess Butterworth play that was on at the Royal Court. So given that Johnny was, you know, was already a mate. We asked him to do the theme music, and then Johnny and his mate um, then uh, went away and scored it for us. And occasionally, we'd use little bits of some of um, Johnny's um, uh, discography. Um, mm. and, you know, just just use a needle drop and use a, a pre-existing track. And then, and then, yeah, and then in the third series, Mackenzie wanted a particular track from the Unthanks, so we. That was the Magpie song, so we, um, uh, so they, so they acquired that as well. Amazing, yeah, it really works. And um, and the single is on Spotify and is is absolutely brilliant. You know, we listen to it all the time in this house and and always think of Detectorists when we do so. We work we work really hard to make the first second series special and and interesting. And you know, there was a there was a. A, a sort of an, un, an underlying note from the BBC, what, the, what they really wanted was episode of the week, story of the week. Every week, can we have a different story? Can you just make it like a sitcom? Uh, we, do, we Yeah, and Mackenzie tried really hard to take that note from the BBC. And, uh, and I said, no, look, what you want to write is something with a very strong narrative and an arc. Mm. And you've really only got one story to tell, so tell that over six parts and we'll make and it. And that's what all three of those series do so well. Yeah, each one, each one has, a, yeah, each one has a single arc which comes to a really satisfactory conclusion. Everything tied up nicely in the last episode, and that's yeah. that's one of the that's one of the great things about it. It's so satisfying because a lot of sitcoms, um, each episode starts the same as the previous one started. You almost kind of reset everything well, overnight, and, it, and you well, begin it, at the it, same place. It is one of the rules of sitcom. So, so Detectorist isn't really a sitcom. It's a comedy drama, but it's the best kind of comedy drama. A funny comedy drama. There's a lot of comedy drama that isn't funny. Do you tend to watch things, Adam, that have people you know in, or do you avoid those things, or does it not matter to you which way? Because you must know a lot of actors and people now who've worked in shows that are popular. <laughs> well, you're, you're, obviously, you, it's so difficult to watch anything without turning your eye to it in a slightly, slightly hypocritical way. <laughs> and you just think, oh, they've not done that scene particularly well. <laughs> yeah. it's, so it's quite hard. In a way, I'd rather not be watching comedy and I'd rather be watching other stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, documentaries about the Nazis. Look, I'll mm-hmm. watch, watch any number of those. <laughs> They're always brilliant. <laughs> Do you like the Nazis, Adam? Well, what always amazes me about that is how they were able to get away with it. How did the Nazis get away with that? (laughs) 
Yeah, he got away with it for a while, to be fair. Oh, that is true. <laughs> they were ganged up on them, didn't they? That's right, yes. Yeah, it's hard to listen to the thing that you also do. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, your your hobby, obviously, Adam, wouldn't be watching television, but you, you must... Um, well, I, I must have got into it somehow. I think you'll find that it was my hobby for a while, and, I, <laughs> and I've, I've made the made the fundamental mistake of deciding to do it for a living. And <laughs> once you started, then it changed your relationship with it. It does, of course, it does. Yeah. <laughs> I heard that Carrie Bradshaw is a podcaster in the reboot of Sex and the City that's just come out. Of on course, some she is. Channel I don't have. Of so course, she fucking is. I'm, I'm intrigued by that. I thought that was a bit of a stroke of genius. Actually, it's like, yeah, she's always been. You know, quite up on the latest. <laughs> so, Layla, are you a Sex of the City fan then? I am, yeah, of course, of course. Super fan. Well, you see, that was the show that I stopped. I stopped watching after about two episodes when I realised that every episode was structured in exactly the same way, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I got so angry with it that I just, I just couldn't, couldn't put up with any more shots of Sarah Jessica Parker sitting down there, <laughs> writing there and doing a little bit of a recap about two-thirds of the way through the episode and going, oh, my God, please stop doing it now. I like to think that Sarah Jessica Parker's character, is it Carrie? Carrie yes, Carrie Franchel, yeah. In Sex and the City, and Doogie Hauser in Doogie Hauser MD um, were guest <laughs> bloggers on the same blog. That would be a really nice thought that they, Maybe they, they were yeah. sharing their important thoughts into the same into the same publication somewhere. Maybe they met on an IRC, or no, it would have been ICQ or something probably. Um, they, <laughs> they swapped ICQ numbers. Uh-uh. Just before MSN <laughs> took off. So Adam, you, you revealed to us earlier that you're not a gamer anymore, but that you used to uh, you used to play games. Yeah, no, um, I, I, I was lucky enough to learn Fortran at school and learn BBC, uh, learn BASIC at... Uh, at uh, university because it was back in the day when that was the best you could do. Uh, I'm, I'm old enough to have programmed a computer with punched cards. That's how, that's how old I am. Uh, and um, when the BBC Micro came in, it was like, oh, my God, it's the future. I must have one. So I got one. Uh, and, uh, and obviously, you know, the best things around for a, pro- a computer like that were 8-bit games. So I played a lot of 8-bit games and got quite good at them but have recently discovered that I've become slightly dyspraxic with game controllers and I just cannot get my head around any of it. I'm, I'm in exactly the same boat. I remember spending hours and hours playing games and getting quite fast and, you know, feel, feeling confident with it. And these days, if I try and pick up a, a console game and these things are, you know, designed for um, fast twitch action and the controller is so much different, it's so, so different to using a an old big clunky keyboard. So in theory, it should actually be a lot easier. Um, but actually, especially when I try and play online with other people, I'm realising that it's maybe, um, yeah, maybe, maybe not for me. I'm sure there are 40-year-olds and even, you know, people 20 years older who are completely capable of playing computer games, but I'm not sure how. It doesn't seem This is a reference to my age again. <laughs> You, you you told me earlier that you're nearly 60. And I know, I'm, but I've been going I'm around... Pra- no, I'm not 60. I'm nearly 60. I know you said nearly 60. I'm, it's very I'm going around practicing um, <laughs> because I will soon be 60 and I'll have to own up to it. Even though, even though 60 is the new 40, I will have to own up to it. So I'm going around practicing by saying to people, you know, I'm nearly 60. Nearly. I think you've got quite strong geek credentials, Adam. I think not only really did you play a lot of 8-bit games, I think you're, you're um, a bit of a, a D&D 
Oh, yeah, yes. no, I, that's how I, I try and remember whether that's where Layla and I first met, or no. And no. I think no, we, I, I, yeah, I got I got sucked in when I was at university. There's no doubt about it. And I did. I played quite a lot of role playing games through my through my uh, my twenties. I do have Adam. Actually, I have a book that you lent me on my bookcase. I still haven't given you back, and I'm just going to go and get it so I won't be able to hear you for a second. Hang on. I'm going to ask you about the indie while she's doing that. So, was was there a particular edition or a you know particular Particular thing uh, yeah, were... yeah. So, so second edition uh, AD and D was was oh, my my go to system for uh, well at least for the for the DM who was running the campaign that I got completely sucked into. But I think uh, I met your DM at a party um, many many years ago. Oh uh, right, your front yeah. stop was was new. We uh, we had a, a party for maybe. Oh, I might have might have might have dragged him along. There was definitely yeah, yeah. I might have dragged him along to one of your shift front stop parties. Yeah, um, and. Uh, uh, but then you know you hunt around for you hunt around for the the, the best replacement when you realise that there's obviously a flaw in the system because it doesn't actually model real life the way it should or even fantasy the way it should. So I've gone through all sorts of things. I've played RuneQuest. I quite like Call of Cthulhu for modern day stuff, and um, uh, and GURPS is my go to system because it just covers everything. This is Steve Jackson's game system. Which you, you're nodding like you know it. That's great. I'm not not intimately, but I'm aware of it. Um, I listen to a couple of um, kind of real play podcasts, and I I really admire the um, the ability that people have to tell story through uh, through games like that. And, I know it's yeah. really it's really amazing. I've learned so many lessons from from playing um, uh, from playing role playing games, and um, I, I try to take some of those lessons through into script writing. But it is different. It is different because that's sort of open-ended. It's a different way of having narrative. Like the fact that you're in control and you can change the story while you're in it is something that television hasn't yet done. I'm hoping it might do. Although that said, Netflix has experimented a few times with kind of interactive. Yeah, but I wouldn't. But I wouldn't. But I wouldn't go there willingly. I'd have to be yeah. dragged into the world of interactive television and multiple choice, choose your own adventure type fiction. I mean, Layla knows more about this sort of thing than I. Much more about this sort of thing because you've done. Pick your own adventures, haven't you? Yes, I think we met because uh, I think it was through Dave Schneider and I think he mentioned you and somehow I thought you might be interested in my book, so I sent it to you and that must have been 2009. Presumptuous. That's my theory. Yeah, um, that's all starting to hang together. I do remember your book. It was very good. Oh, thank you. Well, anyway, this is the book that you lent me, (laughs) which is called Shadows... Um, Shadows in the Dark Mechet, and it's about vampires. Oh, really? Do you wow. remember this? No, absolutely <laughs> no idea about that I've ever given it to you. It must have been a present because I don't think I've ever seen it. No, you lent it to me um, oh, okay. at least 10 years ago. And yeah, Why didn't you give it back? It was quite good. I intended to many times, <laughs> never quite got around to it, and I was enjoying it. But yes, it's. Um, is it what sort of vampires is it? Is it like Anne Rice, God rest her soul? You, did you see that she died? Quite sexy vampires. Yes, I saw she died. Yeah, it was sad. It's got lots of pictures and fragments and things in it. It's one of those kind of. Oh yes, lots game of source, books with a source book type thing. Yeah, very yeah. good. Yeah, but yes, I, I always think of you, Adam, when I see that on the shelf. <laughs> I should get it back to you at some point. Oh, um, I, like, I like to be thought of as a sexy vampire. <laughs>
I remember being introduced to a spreadsheet for the first time, and that was on an Acorn uh, Archimedes computer that, again, wasn't internet connected, but they were uh, connected via an Ethernet all to each other. Uh, and that was a yeah, it was a real eye-opening moment for me. This is what the, the moment when I thought, hmm, actually, computers you can you can solve some really interesting problems with them. What was the name uh, of that? What was the name of that package? Was it called Pipe Dream? Oh, that's a good question. It might have been um, written yeah, by. It, it definitely didn't look like Excel. It was a. It was a. No, it was his own thing. It was. It was yeah. his own thing. It was quite quite advanced, yeah, very happen. fast for what it was. Yeah. I think. Yeah, it was. It was you used it as a word processor as well as a as well as a spreadsheet. That was that was the weird thing about it. Wow. I like that. There's loads of great stuff on the Archimedes. It's a very um, overlooked computer in the history of computing. Um, really surprisingly powerful and exciting. But but it was the thing that I couldn't get hold of. I, it was one ah. of those, we were talking about the, the wait for a BBC B mm. earlier on. Well, um, Acorn risk machines, Acorn just couldn't make them fast enough. Mm. They had loads of supply problems, loads of manufacturing problems. And I think I waited nine months for a computer Whoa. that never turned up. Oh, no. And so in the end, I just went, oh, well, sodja, I'm going off to buy a Mac. And I, that's, <laughs> at that point, I bought a Mac. Wow. Instead, I bought a Mac SE and... That was the that was oh, that was that was the end of my commitment to supporting the British computer. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh dear! Have you been a Mac guy ever since then? What do you use now? Uh, I'm currently using a number of Apple products. Right. <laughs> okay, <laughs> like most of us. Um, but look, on the subject of presents and things yes. that you've been sent, yeah, I've I've received this from you. Uh, I'm going to show it that you won't be able, you, you you people listening won't be able to know what it is, but it's a very industrially wrapped Christmas <laughs> gift. Um, sort of in a sort of psycho sense, the silver gaffer tape and the turquoise ink kind of give it an air of something that really shouldn't be opened without reference to the bomb squad. But um, but I, I'm, I'm going to imagine that it's come from you, Leila, because you said you were going to send me something. No, I don't recognise that at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm now going to back away and not open it. I don't have the same thing as you guys. I've sent you both, I think, a very similar thing each. Um, you're to open it. You are. I think I have one of the same things, which I, because I know what it is, I have also got some stuff to go with it. Um, then I got myself some other stuff from the co-op over the road because they do sell Scottish food over there. Oh, that's very good. I've got a, I've got my Swiss Army knife out to open it up very very carefully yeah. without risking. Handy desk scissors, just in case. <laughs> so these the things that these guys are opening are Scottish themed treats um, that I picked up in Edinburgh, which is not far from where I live now. And um, yeah, I thought we could do a little a little Scotland special. There's lots of iron brew flavored stuff you can get around here. Very exciting, Layla. Oh, thank you. Actually, yeah. nice things here. I thought you were going to yeah. send us a load of old tap, but this yeah. is actually really, really, really nice. What have you got there, Adam? I've got born in Scotland, but fast flavoured cream, and they've got something on them. It's going to make me sneeze. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, yeah, it has made him sneeze. That's very impressive. You were right. What a is, it, is, it, is it anthrax flavour? <laughs> <laughs> it's got rice in all over it. So, so um, Buckfast is a drink, isn't it? I don't think I've ever tasted it. Yeah, Bucky. Um, I, I find you the official... Actually, it's from 
Buckfast tonic wine is a caffeinated, fortified wine from Devon, apparently. I always thought it was a Scottish thing, but I maybe that's just his... thing. Is Bucky O'Hare based on Buckfast? <laughs> different, <laughs> different sauce. So we've different things. So Adam, Adam has to tell us what these Buckfast sweets are like. I'm slightly confused and concerned because the packet's already been opened. <laughs> oh, no. No, it hasn't. But a little corner snipped off it, I think. Oh, no, no, hang on. No, no, no it was torn off by a staple. It's all right. It's okay. <laughs> oh, safe, safe. And adulterated uh, by some anti-Scot. Slanderous. People really love it when we we're on mic with food. <laughs> they look like um, they look like kind of vibrant pink, furry sherbet lemon type balls, don't they? I think mm. that'd be accurate. Mm. Like a sort of rock rock candy sort of. Mm. Have you tried these things that you've sent them out? No, no, I'm, I'm intrigued to know. <laughs> the guinea pig for this. <laughs> Buckfast confection. How would you describe the flavour? Does it taste like an caffeinated tonic wine okay i've taken it out of my mouth <laughs> because to be honest it's it's an epic sweet it's <laughs> it's about the size of a walnut i mean it's it's not small and um it tastes vaguely floral <laughs> i wouldn't have said it had a sort of winey taste or an alcoholic taste or a liqueur taste it tastes of well, I'm going to say heather because it's a Scottish Aww. sweet. It's the colour. It's the it's a it's the colour of pink heather flowers, but it's very vibrant, and um, and 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 tastes like you're sucking heather. That's what I'm. Thinking. That's quite a nice description. I wasn't expecting something so complimentary. Mm. The description I've just found online says it's a caffeinated wine made by British monks and loved by Scottish criminals. <laughs> so there is a Scotland connection. <laughs> I've now got one of the two dogs interested in wow. having oh. um, having one of these sweets. So shall I, shall Which I give one? it? This is Molly. She's Molly. Molly. She's, oh. She likes, she likes sweets more than, more than... Is it safe to give sweets to dogs? <laughs> well, I've just given it to her. So, <laughs> so I'll, I'll let you know. I'll, I'll give you a status update on the dog in a bit. Oh, God. I know she she's does, all... not, does not endorse giving human sweets to no. She's been drooling, so she's obviously anticipating something good. I know she likes caffeine, because I remember pictures of Molly as a puppy that you used to post, Adam, uh, drinking a cup of tea on the sofa. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's right. No, and she's gone off tea now. So, well, I'm imagining that she still likes the kick of caffeine, otherwise that she wouldn't have um, willingly... You've, you've eaten it all? Wow. <laughs> She's had the entire sweet. <laughs> I mean, that looked like it might take me a fifteen minutes to get rid of, and she's been fifteen seconds. <laughs> well, your bad, turn. Your turn now, Rue. Well, I've got, got um, the first one that's uh, caught my eye is uh, this iron brew fudge. Oh yes. Which smells your your uh, Buckfast sweet smell floral. It smells quite soapy, which is my <laughs> concern. But it also looks like it might be. Something made by the Lush uh, Corporation. Because <laughs> in Scotland they call fudge tablet, don't they? Was that uh, different? Or is it a different thing altogether? Mm, very similar, but different. It, yeah, it's slightly different. Tablet's nice. Good grief! Have you tried this, Lena? No, I'm fascinated. Does it taste well, of iron brew? That's a very good question. <laughs> I would say it does not taste of iron brew. 
I would say it needs the smells not taste of ambery. It tastes sweet. It's definitely got a lot of sugar in it. Um, there are some floral notes here. I'm not getting heather. Um, it's quite plasticine for, for fudge, which is quite interesting. I won't, I won't name the uh, the manufacturer. But it's a very odd. Hmm, it's very odd. I'm going to say it must be quite hard to encapsulate the flavour and smell of iron brew and turn it into fudge. I think that's mm. that's maybe the uh, the one thing I'd say about it. It's quite nice. It might be an acquired taste, but it's um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's very interesting. I won't I won't feed it to my dog though. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll leave it <laughs> Um, uh, right. Oh yes, I have that. I think we all have this, right? Uh, yes, this is um, this is a rather nice Bowmore single malt Scotch whiskey, and then ruined <laughs> by following it up with the two words orange marmalade. <laughs> <laughs> orange marmalade. Yeah. Although um, actually, like, actually, that's I am I, um, I I don't drink at all, but I do make orange marmalade. I'm a I'm a connoisseur of the orange marmalade bit of it. Right. And, ah. and the other the other bit of it is an unknown. Well, I've never had more Scotch whiskey. So okay. I can't really stand orange marmalade, but I really like Isla single malt scotch. Ah. So this will be quite interesting. Uh, interesting well, that, that is, yeah. Okay, so oh, I'm going to open my jar. I like both, and I'm smelling mine now. And it does smell of whiskey very strongly to me, which is a good thing, I think. Okay. Good sound. Good Foley work there, and. <laughs> That's one of my favourite jobs, is Foley. <laughs> Can tell. Ooh, no, I'm definitely not an orange marmalade fan, but it smells good. All right, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to have a little bit. It's got that kind of bitter, tangy thing that you'd expect a, a good marmalade to have. I think I can taste the the scotch in there. Mmm, definitely can. I can't. Isn't that wrong? Really? That's wrong of me, isn't it? Or either either that, or it's got it's so so. Faint a taste. It's slightly smoky. That's that's mm. the smell. That's the taste. Oh yes. It's slightly that, to me. The, the smokiness is beautiful. The yeah. smokiness it's is the thing. It's slightly mm. overwhelmed by the bitter yeah. peel flavour. The it's, smell. To me, it definitely smells of whiskey, but it just tastes slightly smoky. But um, yeah. I quite like it. It smells nice. of old crofter. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys, I wouldn't have sent you a whiskey marmalade if I knew that one of you didn't drink whiskey and the other one hates marmalade. Between them, they make the queen. As Rue says, it's a fascinating comparison. You sent me another iron brew thing here, Lena. This is iron brew macaroon. Oh, yes. I know. You could write a, you could wrap a note around that and throw it through someone's window. I think it's it so solid. And the inside of the macaroon, it looks like a, um, I don't know, like a oh, great big lump yeah. of. Like, like a sort of crunchy bar. I've got one of those as well. I'm going to open it. Have you got the same flavour, guys? I can't remember. I gave you different flavours. No, I've got an, I've got an iron brew macaroon that has to be consumed before. The 14th of April, 2022, <laughs> as if that's a sort of special date. I've got um, iron brew pastels okay. that I just picked up from the co-op over the road because in oh, Scotland wow. you can get iron brew stuff everywhere. Stop. They're quite proud of it. Do they, um, does the iron brew uh, company like it if you officially license their product or are they, they quite relaxed about people? 
I don't know, but if you look at the spelling on that, that isn't actually how you spell iron brew, is it? <laughs> iron brew. Yeah, same with the fudge. We've, we've got the uh, R E W on yes. the fudge as well. So I think that's how they're avoiding um, mm. licensing problems. Whereas the macaroon is I I R N B R U. Ah, interesting. Uh, the product name. So maybe they they have made a lot of their own stuff. Definitely, there's an iron brew shop in Edinburgh. I got some of this stuff from. So it definitely smells of c- coconut and chocolate, mm. and it's, it's got, got a sort of thing. It's got like a fondant scent. Yeah, it. but it's sort of slightly more Should crystalline we? and. It's sort of the colour and consistency of a crunchy bubble without the bubbles. So that slightly crystalline, not quite fudge centre is very similar to what tablet is like. You have to imagine kind of fudge, but made in a way that the, the sugar crystals are a, a bit bigger. And it's interesting because, as you say, it smells of soap. <laughs> <laughs> but actually tastes of iron brew. You think it tastes of iron brew, Ruth? Mm. Does it? Um, maybe of maybe a little brew. more. a little more... Iron brew like than the fudge manages. Well, I think it's, I don't know if it's just the, the coconut makes it confused, but there's. Yeah, it does. It, the, the coconut confuses and informs the flavour. It confuses and informs. <laughs> um, and, uh, and the chocolate and the chocolate distracts. And, but, the, <laughs> but the fondant, the fondant filling, hang on, I'm just going to have to see if I can just get some of that. I quite like it. I mean, I don't know if we've described it. It's like a sort of. Um, what what sort of it's like a, a haggis or something it's like an, an oval lozenge shaped lump um mm. that would you could just about close your hand around <laughs> it's quite large and it's quite solid and quite heavy it looks wow. like something you throw into a swimming pool to see <laughs> yes well to swim with your I was pajamas oddly oddly real i was about to say don't just eat the fondant on its own because it tastes like something you might you might put into a swimming pool it's quite <laughs> chemical <laughs> So you think you need the confusing chocolate and the informing coconut? Yeah, it's got a sort of not. I mean, it's colour of mustard, right? But I don't think it's mustard gas, even though it tastes of oil. <laughs> I was probably most excited by the idea of this iron brew macaroon, but I have to tell you, it's disgusting. <laughs> I'm so disappointed. Um, I mean, it's. I mean, it's fascinating, and it's definitely a, it's definitely a taste combination that sort of works but the individual bits of it don't right. i'm just going to give a little bit to the dog and see what what the effect is <laughs> this is an poisoning your dog the dogs are being very quiet though i have to say no she's up for that Aww. she's into that so i was yeah. a bit confused about this being a macaroon because in in my mind a macaroon doesn't look anything like this but it's it turns around. out I've just been doing a, a very quick Googling. Yeah. Turns out a Scottish macaroon is a fondant thing dipped in chocolate and then dipped in coconut. And traditionally, the centre isn't made of sugar fondant as this is. It's actually normally made of potato. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then wrapped in chocolate and coconut. Yeah. What a weird thing. I'm in computers. I'm in the mainframe. I'm in your headphones. Well, uh, I have to say, Leila, thank you so much for that. That has just made my Christmas <laughs> perfect. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm glad that, that some of the things were tasty and um, the dogs like the rest of it. So, well, it's, I have to say, it's been marvellous to catch up with you. And mm. we should maybe do something at a non Christmassy time. Maybe we yeah. could do something at Easter or another religious festival that wasn't <laughs> Christian. What? Adam, thank you ever so much for joining us. In fact, rejoining us because you're the first guest I think that we've ever mm. had uh, had on twice. 
um, or at least where it wasn't due to a technical malfunction and needing to record again, which has happened a couple of times. But yeah, it's really, really nice to see you again. Thank you so much for, for spending time, spending your Christmas with us. It's been a delight and a pleasure. And uh, I'm, and thank you so much for the jumper. It's just lovely, Ruth. Thank you very much. It's really nice. Hello and happy Christmas to Shift Run Stop. My name is Stephen Goodwin and I'm the author of 20 Go to 10, a book all about retro computers, including the BBC Micro. And this memory comes from that, because I remember writing Mandelbot generators at school, which had to run overnight. There was a, one computer which was in the careers department, and it was the only computer at that time that was left on overnight, and I had to get special permission from the head to start my little Mandelbot generator at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'd come back at 8 o'clock the following morning to see it was almost halfway done. That's probably not the most interesting story. I mean, at my school, there were chucky egg competitions every break time to see who could score the most points in this colourful and rather charming ANF game. Although many versions existed, it was the version for the Acorn BBC Micro that became the best known, since it was the computer deemed educational enough to be allowed into schools. So, every lunchtime, everyone would pile into the computer room. This was when there was more than one computer in the school. And everyone would start playing games. And Chucky Egg was the most popular for quite a while. Now, BBC Basic was incredibly powerful at the time, and the kids are most resourceful. And some of the kids had realised that instead of typing star run Chucky in order to start the game, you could just type star Chucky. But then they discovered they could actually change the name of the file to simply egg. So they needed to type star egg. Then they realised, why just not call the game E? So they typed star E and the game would start. They'd reduced it by 10 characters. That was 10 characters they didn't have to type. And by not typing those 10 characters, it gave the advanced players an extra few seconds in the game, which was often the difference between first and second place. 10 characters. Oh, um. We've had loads of response to a tweet that I put out asking if anyone has any BBC Micro memories, because this year is 40 years of the BBC Micro, which makes me feel old, obviously, but I also went to the 30-year celebrations, and they feel like that happened about six months ago, so obviously that was like a decade ago. Can something make you feel old twice? Yes! <laughs> so we have had quite a lot of response Um Lots of people mentioning Granny's Garden, obviously. Do you remember Granny's Garden, Root? We must have talked about this before. Absolute classic. I mean, if, if that doesn't come up in every third episode of Shift and Stop, then it really should be. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you're uh, a little bit younger than me, Leila, but you presumably remember going to school and being allowed the special treat of being able to play on Granny's Garden and yes. other, other uh, what, what would you call them, educational-ish games. Yeah, educational games. Um, just things like guessing games as well, those kind of... Um, guess the, you know, not guessing games, but sort of quizzes where you uh, try to work out a capital city or something and it just goes through a list and, do you know what I mean? Like it'll say, what's the capital of France? And then you'll type something and it'll say no because you didn't give it a capital letter at the yeah. beginning or something like that. Yeah, sort of a really badly formed quiz. And the other <laughs> yes. one that that's reminded me of is playing the kind of 20-question style guessing game. You know, I'm thinking of a thing animal whatever it might be definitely animals i seem to remember you know does it have four legs does it have gills yeah yeah is this something that sounds very familiar had in their school there was probably like a, a bundle of software that every school was provided with so we, we're probably all remembering the same thing here 
Granny's Garden, obviously, if you go and find it on YouTube now, it's it's a very, very poorly designed game. Um, it's barely <laughs> even a game. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> it's, um, it's not as amazing as you might remember it, let's put it that way. Um, the artwork is very bad as well. But, Do you think it's possible that a lot of us have got roasted into spectacles? Because I would never have considered that Granny's Garden was in any way anything other than perfect. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and obviously in, in Ruinai's uh, day, in, in, our, in our era, it was uh, sort of one, one computer to the primary school wheeled around on a giant trolley and a few people referenced the trolley um, in their memories yeah, as well. trolley, a sturdy trolley. You wouldn't you would yes. want to walk into that with your little six-year-old shins. That would be very, very painful. <laughs> oh, no, and then a the big square rectangular yes. blocky um, monitor on top. That's right, yeah. Um, I'm looking through the tweets now. So Chthonic Iconic, which is Mike Trinder, who's been on our show many times, um, being read out for his, for his entertaining messages to us, said that he managed to bite edit Chucky Egg to make new levels after they got too good at it, which I think is amazing. That's very advanced techniques. I had a, a an example not quite as advanced as that, where if you break out of the program that's currently running, you can go in and change the listing, mm. which meant replacing line ten with yes. your own line. Yes. 10. So you can obviously, you know, you, you, you type in uh, the basic. It's very difficult to resist, isn't it? The the power that you feel when you realise that you can change something fundamental to a game just by typing like line sixty prince quotes (laughs) something else. Your bottom smells. When I say naughty words, you know, I'm I'm sure they were pretty pretty mild. Um, But yeah, that's a very very happy memory of childhood getting in and like editing with it a bit. Uh, Mike also says um, possibly one of his fondest memories is the last moments of the school BBC computer that occurred when somebody idly picked up the 3.5mm audio jacks and the figure 8 power cord from the tape deck and discovered that one fitted into the other. If that's true, that's horrendous. That's a terrible bit of uh, safety design. Mark O'Connell references the, uh, the BBC Micro at primary school being wheeled around from one class, class to another on a trolley, often used it in the corridor. I learned to write code on one of them in secondary school. Yeah, I think and somebody else was saying how... Um, how a sort of generation of coders sort of started off. I know that you're a Commodore guy, Rue, but do you think, did you start with the BBC at school or did you have school. a school? Yeah, my primary school. Yeah, that was before you had a Commodore? Yep. yep. Right. Commodore yeah. would have come probably in uh, in middle school, I guess. And then uh, wow. and then we finally got PC that, that I could do things in MS-DOS, which was, was fun. When I say things, I mean, you know, um, worms <laughs> and, <laughs> and Windows 3.1. Um, but yeah, I think my first ever like touching a computer and making it do things that I wanted was definitely a, a BBC. Alex Ray says, I was computer monitor at primary school around 1990, which mainly involved setting the machines up for a lesson when I should have been out in the playground. That sounds very familiar, Alex. Yeah. Uh, had to load a program off a central computer to each one using a home-built network. I recall the switch being built into an old floppy disk organiser. Lots of soldered wires and a big rotary switch to select each BBCB in turn. Lots of back and forth to each machine. To this day, I can remember the various commands. Asterix, FX, 7, comma 1, etc. Happy days. That's amazing. That sounds really, really intense as well. That like, seems like it should be a life. film, that. Like some kind of computer whiz kid who set up, sets up a, an intranet for the school on the BBC. Yeah, just, uh, yeah we certainly didn't have any networking going on. I mean, like like you, we had the one yeah. uh, BBC which was wheeled around on a trolley. The idea of multiple of them connected would have blown my tiny mind. <laughs> 
Casper says, I remember my jaw literally dropping when for the first time ever, a computerized voice came out of the speakers. I can still hear Superior Software Presents wrapped <laughs> onto. Um, when, when you read that tweet, did the audio of it just appear completely <laughs> unannounced into your brain? Because for me, it did. I could hear every tiny syllable of that in my brain. Yeah, I remember there was a game that wasn't Elite, but was probably inspired by Elite. It was like a flying round in space, mm. a bit, bit more simple. Um, maybe inspired by Star Trek as much as anything, because I seem to remember the ship being a little bit um, enterprisey. And that felt to me at the time, playing it, like it was the most immersive experience possible. Yeah. The idea of, you know, this little black and white set of pixels moving around, shooting things on the screen. I could play it for hours at a time. You know, I, I really was living inside that universe. It was it was <sighs> astonishing. And then obviously every few years, another game comes along that gives you the same feeling and, and makes you think, oh, well, that, that before was rubbish compared to this. Yeah. Um, there was a, a DOS game that was um, based on The Hunt for Red October or maybe okay. even another film. Maybe it was called Run Silent, Run Deep, but it was a, a submarine game and you had to evade other submarines or maybe, you know, see them before they saw you and fire torpedoes at them. It was incredible. It felt like I was a captain of a submarine. I, I, could, I could sort of command it in these different ways with just a few little key shortcuts. And especially if you'd recently watched a submarine film, it was mm. the most fun you could have. It was like, you know, put, putting this on the screen as though you were, you know, simulating the real, the real thing. Isn't it um, interesting like, how, little, how little graphics you actually need to create exactly. that completely immersive feeling? Yeah, so it was, you know, in some ways the limitations and the kind of, you know, teletext style, everything mm. is just done in a few little, very sparse graphics and just text. Yeah. Um, and especially then when you saw films where in, you know, war games and other seminal 80s, 90s films that were showing us how the world was working in, in the real world or, or attempting to, uh, the graphics that they were presenting on there, usually hand-drawn, you know, rotoscoped yeah. or you know, d- done uh, completely, completely fake. You know, none of that is uh, 3D pixel perfect. It's all very constrained and limited. So mm-hmm. it kind of added credibility to the idea that actually, yeah, the compute, the world is being run by these, you know, weird, it's not any more fancy than this. Yes. War Games was, was incredibly powerful. Did that did that hit you in a really big way when you were a kid? Is it really, really I don't know if I watched it at the time. I feel like I watched it later. Um, so, But when I watched it, whatever, however old I was when I finally watched it, yes, I loved it. I thought it was excellent and really exciting. Um, but the big, the, I suppose the big thing uh, actually around the sort of on that theme was the uh, the story of Kevin Mitnick and the kind of trials that he went through. Um, and I very, very clearly remember following that story somehow without, wow. you know, as a child, I didn't have uh, the internet. I didn't have yeah. um, a, a newspaper or anything, but somehow I was so, I was so interested in it. And then, um, yeah, following the whole thing and just thinking it was the coolest thing that ever existed. And I was like 13 or something, just like, oh, my God, who is this guy? And then they finally caught him and he was hiding out with his laptop. And it was just like, oh, fuck, they've caught him. And just feeling a dismay about it. But that, that for me, that was the big one. That was like the big kind of, oh, wow, computers are amazing. Um, this, this story is so exciting. 
Um, really and then, you. yeah, it really did. We should invite him on as a We should get him on. Absolute <laughs> oh, crypto man. bro. But um, yeah, no, that would be good. Let's try and get him on. I'm in computers. I'm in the mainframe. I'm in your headphones. What else have you been up to later? What's, what's been keeping you busy? Well, um, me and my friend Sarah have been doing a few things over the last year. Sarah Dobbs, actually, Sarah was, Dobbs. A, was a guest on Shift Run Stop. We talked about Saw and, and other horror-related things. Anyway, we've made a pack. We've made two packs of cards that you can buy on Etsy. Um, and the most recent ones are... Uh, I might be able to get them and show you a... Um, the most recent ones are called Feel Better Cards. And the idea is that you take a... Um, basically they're business card size and there's about 24 of them and each one has something written on them that is a kind of a a positive provocation I suppose, like something to snap you out of thinking negatively or just make you think a bit when you're a bit stuck or you're feeling a bit down Um, and we're selling them with clips I'll just get a clip with these gold clips but you don't have to buy them with a clip you can just buy like a small peg on a stand a few inches tall like a photo clip um, might hold, hold the card up in the, uh, holder. In the air. so you can put it next to you um, on your desk or wow. you can just put them on the mirror or whatever um, yeah. that's that so you can see the back there oh they're gorgeous um, and it says feel better cards in our logo yeah. and then that's that's one of them it says we live in a vast wow. and mysterious universe just to remind you, you know, of your place in the world and this perspective. That, they're um, beautiful. What does that one say? It says, whatever happened, it probably wasn't all your fault, <laughs> <laughs> which I find I quite often need to remind myself. Um, never be ashamed of being excited. That might be one for oh, you, Rue, because I, I know like you get one. excited about things. I do get excited, and then I feel not necessarily always shame, but I do sometimes feel self-conscious about just how earnest and sincere and excited uh, I am about the world. It's your best quality. Um, schedule in time to do nothing. There's another one. Yeah, so we, it's really important. Resting is, is part of whatever it is that you do. If you don't make time to rest, then you're not going to be as effective. It's really, really important. These are great, though, and so beautifully packaged as well. Uh, right? that's, a, that's quite a thing. Yes, so that's that's my oh, thing that I'm suggesting people buy as their uh, New Year treat to start the year as they mean to go on. Well, pe- people can't see it because th- this is an audio medium, but I've mm. just seen it and I thought they were absolutely beautiful. Oh. And I'm quite tempted to order a packet. So where, oh. where would I do that? Where, where do I go to find them? If you go to, um, let me think the easiest way, is probably just go to Etsy and then type in Sarah and Layla and that should mm-hmm. bring it up because that, that's what our um, shop's called. Can I also get to them via sarahandlayla.com? And if not, why not? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I think you can, actually. Um, let me see if I've actually put the link on there. Yes. Um, tell you what, I will put it on sarahandlayla.com because it's at the moment it's still promoting our previous cards. Um, oh, it does link through to your Etsy. So either way, people people will get to it. Ah, uh, yeah, you'll find it somewhere on there. Well, yes. and these are these are astonishingly good value. Oh, thank you. I'm going oh. to buy them with the clip, <laughs> even though it's three pounds more than without the clip, because the clip <laughs> is very beautiful. Um, you can also just keep them in your wallet, or put them on the mirror, or um, you know, take one with you in your bag when you go somewhere, so that you find it and it's a reminder. Um, tape it to your eyebrow so that it's just there by your eye. So it's just hanging over you at all times. <laughs> on every eye, you can choose, <laughs> <laughs> choose which eye you want to look out for by lifting it up. 
Yeah, these are, these are really beautiful. And even the bag that they come in looks looks gorgeous as well. That's, uh, that was Sarah. She, she likes the sort of um, colour, most kind of colourful holographic. She always pushes me a bit further. I'll, I'll always try and get something a bit more muted and then she'll, she'll be like, no, we must get... And she's always right, obviously. But it's in the kind of holographic effect. Um, magical unicorn bag. Yeah, it looks like a yeah, very precious collectible commodity. And because we're recording a little bit before Christmas, if I order this now, it will actually arrive before Christmas. It might. So, I think, yeah. It there, might. Okay, there, no, it might. There are postal delays. I will, I'll post it as soon as, as soon as I get your order. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't. I don't know how quick the post is at the moment, but we'll do our best. That was Shift Run Stop, available on iTunes or from the website shiftrunstop.co.uk. Yeah.